Welcome to LPO Offstage with me, saxophonist Yolanda Brown. There have been so many moments throughout this podcast series that have made me stop and think, or insights which have given me new perspectives on what it means to be a musician and how to cope with the difficulties along the way. Here are some of our highlights from Series 3, which might bring you closer to finding the meaning behind why the players do what they do. Actually, ultimately, we only exist because of the audience. That's the whole purpose of the orchestra, is to play music and to make people feel good or feel sad or feel happy or, you know, bring a lot of joy to a lot of people, hopefully. I remember getting very emotional when I saw uh, one of the performances where the orchestra and the performers were in the seats and how it was all sort of flipped around the other way. And it allowed me as a viewer just to get a little bit emotional and just process what we were actually experiencing here. Kate, did you feel that during those performances, it was about more than the music and what the audience might be taking from it? Oh, definitely. I mean, especially for me, because my family, they're living in New Zealand, you know, and when these concerts first started coming out, they were in lockdown and under restrictions. So I know for them how how hugely uplifting all of these concerts have been and kind of helping with those feelings of loneliness and isolation, as well as the kind of physical, you know, I'm on the other side of the world and in the middle of a pandemic and just being able to see me on the screen and be like, she's still eating. She's okay. You know, (laughs) (laughs) that's a good point. Exactly. And had they been able to see you perform live before in the LPO or was this their first experience of seeing you at work? First time. They haven't seen me play in an orchestra since I left New Zealand. Oh, so, wow. What, was, yeah, that, what was that conversation like when they saw your first performance? Oh, I think they're our biggest fans, honestly. <laughs> They've watched, they, they're on top of everything. My dad will have already read the program for the next concert before we even started rehearsals. <laughs> but he's so on top of it all. That is brilliant. <laughs> We did some schools concerts and, of course, the noise is sort of through the roof, really. I mean, you know, bless the teachers for trying to sort of get them to sit quietly. But, you know, we know it's not going to be like that. And it's great because they're kids and they're they're whatever age they are, eight, ten, whatever. And they're lively and they've all got their high-vis things on. So the lights go down and then all their high-vis things come up, sort of, you know, and it's hilarious. But I walked on stage and, as I said, when you walk on, I want to sort of engage with them a bit. So I just gave a bit of a wave to some of them, and they all waved back. And then the next block over waved at me because they wanted a wave, and it just completely snowballed and escalated. So I had the whole festival hall pretty much waving at me. So I've got my hands up in the air and go, yeah. And then I sort of applauded them. So they started clapping (laughs) back. So in the end, I was sort of clap, clap, clap. Clap, 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 getting faster and faster and faster. And then when it got so fast, they just, I mean, it was unbelievably loud when I they screamed. I remember that when I came on the stage, you, you've been there for a while already. When I yeah. came on, it felt as if I'm entering a rock concert. Yeah. Yes. And definitely all the shouting and clapping and, you know, you know, impressive, absolutely impressive. It was brilliant. Kind of your I mean, achievement, they, I think. Yeah, I just think, it, I mean, that, that for me is what it's about. If they go back to the schools and the classrooms and whatever and they talk about it and they say, oh, it was amazing, we, you know, we did this, because obviously they, then they get involved with songs through the actual concert and they were they were basically impeccably well-behaved through the, the thing. But, 
you know, beforehand, it was, yeah, it was like being at a Queen concert, you know. Simon Estelle having fun with a hall full of young people. But things aren't always so straightforward for LPO musicians. Elizabeth Vicklander's very honest when it comes to answering this question. When we say about distractions for musicians, sometimes it, it might not even be what other people are saying. Sometimes it's that small voice in your own head saying, can I do this? Am I good enough? Are those some of the distractions you think that professional musicians have? At least I do. (laughs) I have them a lot, all the time. Uh, I mean, in everything I do, uh, I always question myself whether this is good enough or... I think that can be both a blessing and a curse, I suppose, because that is also the driving force that brings you to evolve yourself and improve. I particularly, uh, what what came as a real blessing was when I was academist in the uh, Royal Kosekoba Orchestra in Amsterdam, where I got a lot of my my orchestral training and my, my skills as an orchestra player, the former principal horn soloist there, tipped me about a certain technique that was just like the last puzzle piece that was missing for me, a centering technique that helped helped me overcome my fear of being fearful. <laughs> that the, the only thing I feared was fear itself, basically. Yes. And once I conquered that, I didn't have to fear feeling nervous or having these thoughts because I knew that they don't have to impact my performance anymore. So it didn't remove these feelings. They're still always there. I can still be so nervous and doubtful that I can feel almost fi- that I can feel physically sick by it sometimes for a long time, but I'm no longer afraid of feeling that way. I don't fear getting nervous because I'm thinking the nervousness is going to ruin my performance. I'm just thinking, oh, I'm nervous. It's not a threat anymore. I still know I can still perform no matter how how crap I feel. Do you have any tips for musicians that maybe go are going through that at the moment uh, of directions that they can go in to, to help them? dampen that voice a little bit. This is also something that you can train. I, for example, with this technique that was given to me by this uh, colleague in the Kosakuba Orchestra, it actually involved learning to visualize certain things the way that athletes also do when you visualize success. And that is something that in the beginning was actually quite hard to do <laughs> because <laughs> you, you, you tended to always see yourself fail because that was what was on, on your cards at, at that moment. But the more you, you trained to actually visualize success for yourself the better you became at it. So don't give up, but just continue to practice also the mental aspects of handling stress. If you keep searching, you will find what you're looking for. And once the concert's over, are LPO colleagues also friends? In, in terms of a friendship, you're afterwards, should we go for a drink? Or, you know, how are you feeling today? And then you just maybe blurt out what might have been on your mind. Does it go further than just the markings, the music, the page turning? Christina, you are nodding very, very enthusiastically. <laughs> because this is absolutely, without a doubt, at least in cello section, this is something I, I can definitely tell that it's a, it's a, you know, a very, very friendly section. Part of us being happy together, of course, is making music together in, in, a, in a, our best possible way we can but also is the friendship is is actually those moments when after the concert even in this pandemic few times oh we had a little gin and tonics let's just be you know because we can't really go out anyway <laughs> yeah. at least where the where the cello boxes are let's just have one drink and and cheers after the concert yes, after the oh, co- always after, after. after always after absolutely <laughs> <laughs> Uh, 
I've also seen that you went on tour with the LPO to India and I saw a, a picture of you with your trumpet there in Mumbai with lots of students just enjoying uh, all the music that you do. And of course, we've done a podcast together speaking about the outreach of the LPO. What was it like going on tour to India? First playing, but also those wonderful outreach moments. It was uh, one of the most amazing experiences of my life. I've always wanted to go to India, but to actually go and enjoy the musical culture as part of it, rather than just an observer, was fantastic and an, an incredible opportunity. And as you mentioned, combined with that, because we tend to try and, and tie things up, any, any kind of music that we play, with bringing it to other people who may not come in contact with it. So either young people or, or older ones, should it be in a community centre or a school? So whilst we were there, we went to Mumbai and Bangalore and Delhi. Yes. In those three places, we went along to schools and told the students there about our instruments and played them some pieces and worked with them. They were so responsive. It was quite incredible. I don't know what it is about Indian children. Their, their faces just seem to light up. Yes. They just beam at you and there's just so much energy in them. Actually, I learned quite a lot as well by seeing this response and, and it's so different to how the kids are in England. I mean, they get very excited, but in a different way. Education and community workshops with children are one thing, but what about the concert situation where everyone's concentrating and your own thoughts can get in the way? Have you ever had those experiences where you get distracted and did you manage to pull yourself out of it? <laughs> oh, that's so funny. Never. I mean, I, I think I rarely, if ever, have been distracted by a phone or a or something like that. Um, you know, someone having a dog in the front row or something, oh, which has happened. Um, th those things actually, I find them funny. I find them to be usually they're icebreakers because you're not the only one who hears it. Yes. You know, that's the th everyone. It's a collective distraction. What has distracted me is that I am, I think for conductor standards, overly sensitive person. I think I'm an unusually sensitive for, for a conductor. <laughs> I'm particularly sensitive to the mood and the facial expressions of the musicians in the orchestra. Yes. Very much. And that was very difficult for me at first as a conductor, because if someone looked like they were grumpy, I used to think it was because of me. <laughs> and then over time, I gradually realized, you know, the world doesn't grumpy. revolve around <laughs> you, honey. <laughs> this person has their own problems and, you know, it's really okay. But I will sometimes, if, especially when it's an orchestra that I know and if I've heard something from the orchestra manager about somebody, like yes. someone's child was sick, or I know that somebody had something, and then I see that person in the performance, I'm always sort of a little bit distracted because my my level of sort of concern and empathy for that person definitely distracts me in that moment. And mm. then I start thinking to myself, I wonder if they're okay, and I wonder what happened, and how must they feel? And then I have to tell myself, stop. <laughs> Tchaikovsky, <laughs> you know, <laughs> but it's just being a human, I guess. Absolutely. It's, because also as the conductor, the, the main difference is I'm looking at everybody and everyone is facing me. Everyone. People are all looking at me. So I see everyone's face right in, in front of me. And and I meet eyes mm. with, I would say, a good 80 percent of the people on stage you have this, on the one hand, incredible intimacy with the musicians, looking at each other and emoting. And, you know, I'm, I'm giving my whole soul to what I'm doing 
in that moment in the music. But then at the same time, that same person with whom you shared such an intimate moment, you don't know much more about that person than their name, really. You say hello in the hallway, but you actually, on a personal level, really don't know each other. And it's, it's a bizarre thing. That's the beauty of what we do, I guess. If I may just uh, comment Please on uh, Karina's question, because I just thought it was so funny because I'm completely the opposite, the mirrored opposite of her, that how people look doesn't affect me almost one bit. But I'm super sensitive to if there's any sensory distractions in the room. And I think just the fact that knowing that they can occur uh, already helps you to prepare mentally for the moment where they do occur. Most of the time, natural distractions like a fly will not bother me so much. But human behavior can very much distract me if if someone is making a noise or, yes, or if a lamp is, is flickering. A lot of this boils down to the fact that I'm an autistic individual, that I'm super, super sensitive to any sensory input around me. So how do you cope with that? What sort of coping mechanisms? would? Because if you're in the middle uh, of a concert and a bulb is going uh, off, what do you do? Oh dear, I'm still I'm still working on it. <laughs> I'm still working on finding uh, something better than what I've got. I mean, some days you will be better at being able to block out. It also depends on how much resources you've got available inside of you at that moment. If I'm well rested and not stressed before, I am much more well equipped to do the uh, mental effort that I need to block these things out. Because my world is so completely unfiltered. And even though I'm trying not to listen to it. Even in this quiet room, I'm hearing electricity buzz in the walls. Uh, I'm hearing even from outside the the rattles of leaves from the big oak outside. I'm hearing distant conversations down on the bottom floor. And unfortunately, those things are not something when I'm focused on something that sort of just filters out. My, My brain consciously detects everything and consciously processes yes. and that could be very difficult as a musician especially if you're um, put in an environment like uh, like we spoke of before in the preparation where I don't have the quiet space that is very difficult for me and can be quite disabling actually in many ways so nowadays I, I tend to if I have recitals I actually I advertise that I'm autistic oh. and I'm asking people to please you know not do certain things if they can avoid it and uh, because of these things because why shouldn't I ask for it when I'm so sensitive to these things and it could really impact my performance and it's nothing that I not much I can do about yeah. it because I'm wired that way biologically <laughs> half of a musician is their instrument And if you're a string player, buying one as a young professional is on a par with buying a car or even a house. As cellist David Lale says, they're really expensive. I had, similar to Mark, by about 15, I I had a professional standard instrument. When I got to Guildhall, I felt like I needed to upgrade again. Buying an old Italian instrument was out of the question because you're looking at hundreds of thousands of pounds. So the next best option to me at the time felt like um, commissioning a new instrument to be made. Okay. Um, So one of my colleagues, he had this amazing instrument. I couldn't believe it. You know, it looked incredible. It looked old, looked amazing, sounded incredible. And it was made by a German guy called Hart Hedleff Uldurks, who was based in Lübeck. So I asked him about this instrument and he told me there's a waiting list, but um, you should be able to get one within a year or so. And it's uh, 25 and a half thousand euros. I thought, well, that's actually a bit more manageable than 
180 grand or something. Yes. My old cello teacher, who um, Anna Shuttleworth, who I had in, I learnt with in Leeds, who sadly passed away last year, actually. Amazingly, I didn't even ask for it. It just came up in conversation. Sent me a cheque for £10,000. <sighs> if it wasn't for her, there's no way I would have been able to have done it. Or That's I would have had beautiful. to have sold my cello to do it. Yeah. Similarly, there was um, my grandparents helped out and mum and dad I saved up all sorts you know took a bank loan out and by hook or by crook managed to buy this instrument so fast forward I guess let's fast forward about six or seven years I ended up selling back to the guy when I found an old Italian instrument through a colleague so Um, you didn't keep the instrument after that's not the instrument you play now it was a good instrument Uh, it didn't quite work out the way I'd hoped in terms of and how it felt thing, when you played it? How it sounded, how it felt, yeah. This is the thing with modern instruments versus old instruments. When you commission one, it's potluck, really. It's a dark art and you never, no one really knows. The wood could be from the right place, could be hung for 100 years and expert makers, the best. But you never know. And for me, it just didn't quite work out. Now, who you sit next to every day in the orchestra is important for all sorts of reasons. Are romantic connections ever made between desk partners? Because you really are a, a partnership. You're working together <laughs> all the time. I, think I should hand this over to you, Christine. <laughs> oh anyone, my God. Have you heard of an experience or experienced it yourself that that can happen? Oh, yes. I'm not sure how much I can tell about it now. <laughs> You don't have to give names. Just give us scenarios. It well, just let's, let's, us- just, let's just put it this way. We have had uh, several couples, uh, I, I don't know, yeah, in, in, also within the section that obviously sit together from time to time. <laughs> As in the relationship has blossomed because they work so closely together or? Yes, I mean, they definitely have met in this orchestra for oh. sure. So it has happened, the romantic relationship has happened that. in this orchestra yes. while, while playing and probably off stage more than on stage. <laughs> Hopefully off stage yeah. Than on stage, yeah. <laughs> love letters on the stage. On know. this subject, I would say, uh, and not so much. I wouldn't say I knew so much about um, relationships between desk partners, kindling between desk partners. Yes. But across the orchestra between musicians, yes. Well, I had heard a little bit about this sort of went on tour and things like that. You know, people. I mean, you are a family. You spend so much time together. The idea that you support each other, you know what each other's going through. It's a great way to meet somebody, surely. Personally, my ex-partner and father of my children was the leader of this orchestra. He came to be leader here a few years after I started playing. And um, I have to say the romance blossomed really because of eye contact across from the second violins to the leader's seat. And um, so, yes, it does happen. In my experience as a musician, many of my colleagues love to wind down out with fellow performers and friends after a gig or concert. But it's not necessarily the case for all of us. Conductor Karina Kanalakis has found her post-concert habits have changed over time. I will admit, <laughs> I mean, I consider myself to be a pretty sociable person. However, actually, I've been, I don't know whether this is good or bad to admit this, but here we go. I have a son who's almost nine months old and I have really enjoyed being able to use the baby excuse <laughs> Oh, yes. (laughs) To not have to do anything after the show. It's not that I don't want to have a drink with friends after the show. It's not that. It's just that I am often really, honestly, very, very exhausted. And it depends on what the repertoire is. But if I've just conducted something like Shostakovich 8, for example, 
you know, a, a wartime symphony where I'm in that world and I'm in that mentality, I find it extremely difficult to just snap out of it and then greet people and smile and say thank you and and do that whole thing. And I've mm-hmm. I've never actually admitted that before, but Elizabeth, you made me feel comfortable <laughs> to to say that. And it's each one of us is very different. And but I do feel that as I've gotten a little bit older, my craving for going out and having a drink has sort of died mm. and <laughs> been replaced by a craving for for more rest, restful moments and to also rest even you know even when you greet people after a concert and smile you're using your facial muscles to smile and i don't know if you've ever had the, oh, the yeah. like my face hurts oh, from yes. smiling face yes. we're all pointing at our cheeks right now yeah killer. i even have it's, it now almost I know. right it's a killer and i i started to notice it i do think it's a little bit of a peer pressure thing that you feel bad if someone invites you for a drink and you say no you know i'm going to go home you know, oh, it's how boring. (laughs) But actually, maybe, maybe we all would really prefer to go and get in our sweatpants and curl up on the couch with our wine or beer or tea or whatever, (laughs) you know. So I think, um, I don't know, the more, what is the moral of this podcast? I guess it's, in a way, is to be more open about the things and just say how you feel honestly and say what you need and not be ashamed of that and not feel that you're being weird or that you're letting somebody down by saying what you need. Ah, true honesty there from Karina. There are so many pressures on musicians, even away from the stage. Well, in this highlights episode from series three of LPO Offstage, we heard from tuba player Lee Samaklis, violinist Kate Oswin, contrabassoonist Simon Estelle, cellist Elizabeth Viklander, cellist Christina Blaumanner, trumpeter Anne McEnany, principal guest conductor of the LPO Karina Kanalakis, cellist David Lale and violinist Fiona Hyam. Well, that's it for now. You can hear the whole of Series 3 wherever you get your podcasts. And please do tell your friends and family. And I cannot wait to be back for a fourth series of LPO Offstage. The new series will launch in March this year. I'll see you then.